Hello, I'm Tiernan Ray, and you are listening to the Technology Letter Podcast for Sunday, December 11th, 2022. It was a tough week for stocks. The Standard & Poor's 500 index reversed three weeks of gains. For the week, it dropped a little over 3%, bringing it to a 3.5% decline for the month of December. The NASDAQ Composite also falling 4% for the week, bringing its December return total to about 4% as well. The proximate cause of this poor performance was uh, the return of fears about rising inflation, fears about continued Fed tightening. One data point amongst many this week, the core PPI, Producer Price Index, coming in hotter than expected propelling further thoughts of rising inflation, Fed tightening, all of this amidst fears that recession is still well on its way if it hasn't already ensued. Happy to say the technology letter 20 group of stocks to consider fared a little bit better. It fell 3% this past week, which means it did better than either the NASDAQ or the S&P 500, and it's up 1% for the month versus a negative return for the indices. The overall tally of the technology letter 20, however, for gainers versus losers, advancers, decliners, uh, went in the wrong direction this week. We had 10 gainers, just down from about 12 gainers the week prior. And declines this week were uh, a mixture of winners and losers. Advanced Micro Devices and Arista Networks, which had been two of the stronger names uh, in preceding weeks, this week dropped 5%, uh, sorry, 9% for AMD and 5% for Arista. Um, That was in line with two of the long-term losers at this point, Coherent, the company that used to be 2.6, the fiber optics component maker, now owner of the Coherent Laser assets, and Tesla. Those stocks were down 6% and 8% respectively this week. So the pain has been distributed amongst what had been the bright spots of the TL20 and the perpetual losers pretty much equally. The bright spot this week was a really good week for earnings amongst some smaller software names. You know, we're sort of in the dregs now of software, and um, we're seeing some of the smaller names come up. And surprisingly, uh, we saw uh, mixed results, but we saw a lot of really good stock numbers this past week. I'd cite just a few in particular. Um, The week started off well with um, GitLab and Sumo Logic, both of those stocks jumping on better than expected sales and earnings results and a better than expected forecast for sales and earnings for the current quarter. Sumo Logic closing up 12% the next day, GitLab up 20%. But we saw a string of winners this week. MongoDB was another one that did great with its results and outlook. Shares soaring the next day by 23%. Guidewire, uh, an enterprise software company, 7% the next day. HashiCorp, another young software vendor, up 8% the next day. Um, C3AI, this is Tom Siebel's AI company. Tom has been telling us all year long just how bad the economy is. Uh, Every conference call is more bad news about how things look out there. And Tom's outlook for this quarter missed in terms of the revenue outlook. Still, the shares rose 8% the following day, which means that the outlook was better than really low expectations. 
Um, DocuSign, a company that had been a real drama uh, uh, for most of, well, 2021 and even into this year, recently got a new CEO. DocuSign missed with its revenue outlook for the quarter, but shares up 12% the following day. So uh, a really great day. The average pop, next day pop of stock price return for all of the companies reporting this week was 7%. The only um, rough patch here was Zora, Tianzhou's a company that sells software for pricing and billing in the era of the subscription economy. Uh, it's been a good company. Uh, it's been reporting many successful quarters. However, this quarter, revenue and EPS outlook missed. The stock dropped 20% after Tuesday's earnings reports. Um, the real interesting outlook for this week was from two old line economy companies, Broadcom and Sienna. Uh, Sienna on Thursday reported in the morning uh, better than expect, much better than expected sales and earnings for the uh, quarter just passed and the revenue outlook beat as well. So what's going on here? Gary Smith, uh, who has been at that company for quite a while and has always been sort of a straight shooter and very down to earth, is a refreshing kind of check, reality check. Gary told analysts Thursday morning that um, the company is seeing some improvement in what had been a really, really hard time in terms of uh, getting just getting parts um, for to ship product. They ship real product. They ship fiber optic communications equipment. So they need transceivers. They need chips. Um, he said the better than expected results quote reflects the benefit of some favorable supply chain dynamics that occurred in the second half of the quarter, including that we received more integrated circuits than expected from certain suppliers, and that we're also able to procure more parts in the open market than originally projected unquote. Gary went on to say. Quote, with respect to over, supply overall, we are seeing ongoing signs of gradual improvement. The majority of our suppliers are delivering to their current committed lead times, and volumes are slowly increasing. And we're also expect continued improvements in these areas as we move through fiscal 2023. And companies also starting to benefit from what he said were various mitigation steps. Uh, companies have had lots of mitigation steps this year. Companies that ship real product, meaning including hardware, and that includes things like paying extra for shipping uh, logistics, paying extra for air freight where they might have used sea freight in past, uh, reserving chips far into the future, huge amounts of commitments, prepayments for years in the future uh, to assure that they get chips. And Sienna has a balance sheet for that, so they're using that. Um, looking at the future, it wasn't just the correction of the supply chain. Gary told the street that Quote, with respect to demand, we remain very positive that the fundamental drivers, including 5G, cloud, and automation, are durable over the long term. Based on these drivers for network investment, we continue to see a strong demand environment in the coming quarters and the next several years. Importantly, we are confident that our leading technology as well as our strategy to expand our addressable market and key areas are closely aligned with these drivers in the areas of investment for our customers, unquote. What can I say? Sienna is an excellent company. Uh, it, it, uh, there are times when um, the overall breadth of its offerings means it kind of gets set back by lulls in spending. It's highly attached to or high, highly levered to, uh, there's a lot of linkage to telecoms spending, and that can hurt it 
for long stretches of time, but I guess estimates get low enough and then the company surprises. This sounds like a very good position for the company heading into what appears to be continued spending by hyperscale or cloud companies. So uh, just delighted to see this good news from Sienna this week. Also a blowout performance from Broadcom. Uh, Hawk Tan's company that sells both um, the core of network processors, the core of many filter chips that go into radio frequency, front-end configurations for smartphones, other wireless gear, but also the owner of um, several software properties, including CA, which had been the mainframe tools company, and soon to be the owner of VMware, the pioneer of virtualization, uh, an acquisition that Hocktan is in the middle of uh, taking care of. The shares rising just 3% following that report on Thursday, but a very good showing from Broadcom. So Sienna and Broadcom, two old wine companies, are just doing excellent. Uh, happy to say I had a chat on Friday with Brian Robbins, who is the CFO of GitLab. Uh, delightful conversation. We talked a bit about what came up on Monday. The, the, the one blemish, despite an excellent report from GitLab, was the company saying, for the first time, we are being affected by the macro. And what he meant was in areas where the company expected to add seats of users for its developer tools, software, his sense is that they didn't add as many as they could have added because of the state of the economy and belt tightening. So first time that the company has used this language and that Robbins has used this language, uh, nevertheless, the results and outlook positive. And so there's no immediate cause for concern, but we did in our conversation dig into that language. And I asked him a little bit about how you spend in a declining, in a contracting economy, if that's what we're in, to try and take opportunity. Because GitLab is one of the companies that's holding up better than many others. Uh, however, bear in mind that for GitLab, uh, it is still really, um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a small company. It's a young company. We're talking about on the order of 100 million quarter. So the results here are different from the results that you see for larger companies that have a larger base of revenue to support. Um, we're starting to get into really the dregs now and this coming week uh, doesn't have a huge, huge number of reports. That's Monday the 12th. Coupa, the spending software vendor, will report on Monday and along with them Oracle. Oracle is kind of the start of the new earnings season, although there then won't be earnings for several weeks. Oracle closes its books right after the quarter ends. So this is the November quarter for Oracle. Safra Katz, the co-CEO, is very proud of the fact that the company immediately closes its books within days. And so November is just in the rearview mirror, but Oracle's already with the numbers. So what you're going to hear from Oracle on Monday is how things looked from November's perspective. Oracle recently been a healthy performer, um, and so I would assume that um, things held up, cloud held up in November, so we'll know Monday afternoon. A software vendor that has been on the comeback trail was in town this week. I met with Mark Anderson, the CEO of Altrix. Anderson took over in October of 2020. He had been a board member of Altrix. Altrix ran into a lot of trouble in 2020, missing uh, expectations several times and so Anderson stepped in to take over the top spot from Chairman Dean Stoker 
who stepped down and remained on the board. Uh, Anderson set in, in motion a plan to change go-to-market, and this involved bringing in several more seasoned executives. Anderson himself had been at Palo Alto Networks uh, for a number of years, F5 Networks. He, he has a lot of big company experience, and specifically taking companies from under a billion to several billion dollars in annual revenue. And so in our conversations in the past, he had said, I've seen this movie before, a phrase he repeated this week when we met at the New York satellite offices in Midtown uh, of Altrix, which uh, is based in Irvine, California. But interestingly, the substance of our discussion this week was turning now to focusing more on product. In other words, he spent two years revamping the sales force and now can he set a more ambitious course for the product? I don't know if he can. His intention is for Alteryx to be, quote unquote, an orchestration layer to coordinate how customers use various cloud computing resources. So what does that mean exactly? Well, his point is that um, as he talks to companies, they're, first of all, they're, they're struggling with how to find enough data analysts. And so they just have a problem of getting tools to, getting, to do more an analysis. Um, he was telling me about customer visits he's had. One was a large insurance company uh, that has thousands of knowledge workers. This is one of the biggest insurance companies in the world. It's US-based. And as Mark told me, they are closing the books with spreadsheets and manual work. One of the largest insurance companies in the world working with Excel spreadsheets. And so this is what his company tries to help, is to, to resolve how these companies uh, are using primitive tools that really aren't getting the most of their talented workforce. But the broader, the broader outlook is that um, more and more companies are using multiple uh, platforms in the cloud. So the big insurance company, he said, Quote, they've got a lot of stuff in AWS, a lot of stuff in Azure. They've even started putting stuff in Google Cloud. However, they can't put all their eggs in one basket. We want to be that orchestration automation layer across the enterprise for analytics in order to help them to use all these different cloud platforms. Quote, we think there's permission that exists for us to build that platform as an independent company. Um, and so the idea is as these giant companies, giant enterprises use lots of cloud services, um, they need to be able to be nimble in moving workloads across these clouds. And he thinks specifically in the analytics domain, Altrix can be the piece of software that helps them to do that, a platform. And his point uh, to platforms generally was that a lot of programs that are kind of competitors in analytics, such as Informatica and SAS, SAS is an analytics program, been around, statistics package have been around for decades. He said they hadn't evolved. His quote was, quote, this industry has been its own worst enemy, meaning analytics software. And he went on to say, quote, I've been in tech for 35 years, and platforms win in every other area, like operating systems, public cloud security, Platforms win because customers want fewer vendors. They want less complexity. They want more automation. They want fewer necks to choke, as one customer would tell me. So that suggests to him that, quote, we think there's permission that exists to build this platform as an independent company. And he is mirroring, mirroring excuse me, what um, Amazon, AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud have done in buying various assets uh, and trying to build out a platform. So it's an ambitious gambit. I, I asked him, do you think you're biting off 
more than you can chew. Um, and he said, no, you know, what we have is a global team now uh, of developers and um, they've given us a modern approach to engineering. So the implication being, you know, we can handle heavy lifting if we have to totally re-engineer the product. Uh, Mark Anderson for Altrix, an interesting, ambitious approach to things. Uh, this weekend, I did a kind of a think piece on what happened during the Great Recession. The Great Recession, you'll recall, was January of 2008 to June of 2009, 18 months. It was the longest economic contraction since World War II in the U.S. Uh, people might be inclined to tell you that what happens in a recession is that nobody buys anything. And they might say, well, they'll buy stuff like Microsoft Word because they, they have to have it and Windows, but they won't buy new stuff. But my point in this long think piece that I put up is that that's not true. Uh, look at two companies in particular that were young companies when the recession got underway in 2008 and recently public companies, VMware and Salesforce. So VMware had uh, gotten together in the 1990s, but it hadn't, it only come public in um, September of 2007, so moments before the Great Recession hit. Salesforce had come public in July of 2004, but both of these companies were young companies in, in 2008 when the recession started, and they really had not yet established their approach to things as the dominant approach. VMware was pushing this virtualization thing, um, and their biggest competitor was Microsoft, which was trying to build it into the operating system. A little bit of comp competition from Citrix Systems, a little bit of obscure open source software such as Xen, X-E-N, was one of the competing hypervisors. But the biggest competition that uh, VMware saw, OpenStack, was yet to emerge. It didn't emerge for several years later, 2010. So VMware was a unique company with a unique proposition, and it was, it was exciting and new, and it was, it was starting to gobble up lots of workloads, but it, it still hadn't sort of established the new wave of technology. Likewise, Salesforce was the poster child for cloud computing, but 2008, the start of the recession, was a time when Larry Ellison was still bad-mouthing Salesforce as a, a bad idea, talking about how cloud would never succeed. Yes, Oracle was not yet a cloud company. Um, and Microsoft under Steve Ballmer, it would be a, quite a while before Microsoft became also a SaaS juggernaut. Uh, Satya Nadella didn't take over from Steve Ballmer, remember, until 2013. It was when Satya took over that Microsoft suddenly got religion about cloud and became a cloud company. So both these companies in 2008 going into the recession were important, strong companies, uh, about almost a billion dollars in re annual revenue at VMware and about three quarters of a billion at Salesforce. So they were making real money and they were even making a small cash profit, but they hadn't yet sort of convinced the world their way was the way. Um, in fact, Mark Andreessen, when he wrote his famous op-ed for the Wall Street Journal in 2011, two years after the recession, he wrote about, how he, his, his subject, of course, was software is eating the world. He, rever he referred in that op-ed three years after the start of the recession as to Salesforce as, quote, a new kind of software giving competition to old established software vendors, Oracle and Microsoft. So it was going to take several years more for Salesforce to be established. And in particular, um, its biggest competition, Workday, um, uh, which was founded a year after Salesforce's IPO, 2005, didn't come public to 2012. So there were lots of cloud companies that weren't 
even yet on the horizon when the recession was underway. What is the point of all of this? Well, the stocks came out okay out of the recession. So they had a lot of damage in 2008, but they rebounded late in 2008. So for example, um, VMware dropped from January, basically December 31st, 2007, to um, Decem early December dropped 79% uh, through December 1st of 2008. 79% drop in VMware, but it rebounded spectacularly from December 1st, from that bottom in VMware stock, through June of the following year when the recession ended, VMware stock rose 52%. Salesforce, likewise, saw a 65% drop from the beginning of 2008 till its trough on November 19th, and then rose 42% in the ensuing eight months. Both of these stocks preceded the rebound in the market. Remember, the broader market, the NASDAQ and the Standard & Poor's 500 index, did not rebound until March 9th of 2009. So there was another five, four or five months for the broader market to rebound. These tech stocks, tech stocks were generally early. If you look across hundreds of names that were public at the time, you will see that they really bottomed in November, December. These, I'm picking these two examples of VMware and Salesforce because to me they are iconic for really creating the zeitgeist of software approaches. Um, it just as important as this, more important than the stock performance, I would say, is um, the company's growth during this period. So in 2008, um, the fiscal year ending, I believe January of 2009, VMware saw an amazing 42% growth in revenue. 42% in 2008 in the year going into recession. 42% revenue growth. Uh, the following year, growth cooled dramatically to 8%, but it was still growth. Growth Sales did not go down in 2009 is my point. In the following year, 2010, VMware rebounded sharply. Sales rose 41% in 2010. Obviously a snapback from the recession year. Uh, Salesforce, 44% increase in sales uh, during the fiscal year corresponding to 2008, and then a 21% increase during 2009, and following that, several years of mid-30s growth. So both these companies notching growth during the recession. Growth did not go away. Sales did not decline during the recession for these two important companies. Moreover, free cash flow improved. Uh, for VMware, free cash flow during 2009 increased a staggering 45%. And we're, we're talking here about almost $900 million in free cash flow in 2009. Real cash profits, not a small amount. Salesforce also, not as much free cash flow, but several hundred million, 28% uh, growth in 2009. So when someone, if anyone goes to you and says, well, you know, in a recession, that people ratchet back and they tighten their belts, they don't buy stuff, they bought a, a heck of a lot of Salesforce and VMware uh, in 2008 and 2009. Going into and coming out of the recession, these companies did very well. Uh, reset, re, expectations had to be reset along the way, but still a very solid performance. So what is the point? Good companies with a hand in important technologies that are changing the landscape continue to sell even in tough times. That's the takeaway. And I offered a couple thoughts about you know what might be comparable this time around. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, but two companies I'm looking at is one Snowflake, the company that makes the database or data lake, you could call it, in the cloud, uh, recently public back September 2020. 
Um, I think there's a lot of controversy still about whether Snowflake is a, the real deal or just a flash in the pan. I think it's the real deal. Uh, it's one of the TL20 companies. Confluent, a fascinating company, a vendor of a cloud-based version of the open source Kafka software. The CEO, Jay Kreps, I've interviewed a number of times. He's one of the key developers of Kafka. A fascinating company. That is a company that has continued to do very well in this tough software environment. Uh, and has, is, has just over half a billion dollars in revenue in the trailing 12-month period. Um, that is less than Snowflake, which has about a billion three, I think. But both these companies, solid revenue outlook. Snowflake is minimally profitable on a free cash flow basis. Confluent is not yet profitable. They're talking about 2024, um, which is a long time to wait. But I, I think both of these infrastructure companies are important companies to watch. And it is not outside the realm of possibility that they could be stars in the way that, um, in the way that Salesforce and VMware were stars uh, coming out of the recession, the years after recession cemented their view of the future. So interesting to look at. Uh, there is a phenomenon that I'm sure you caught in the last week or so. Suddenly everyone's talking about ChatGPT. So ChatGPT is a program created by the California AI startup OpenAI. OpenAI had previously caused controversy by uh, with restricting access to GPT-3, which was its most advanced natural language processing program. GPT-3 is a prime example of what are called large language models. These are programs that are able to generate text that's human-seeming. Not only generate text that's human-seeming, but they can generate it as a continuation of what you type at a command line prompt. So if you type examples of a poem, it can craft a poem in the same tone. Uh, and so this is an amazing advance in natural language processing by programs. And OpenAI this past week introduced a free kind of beta test version of GPT called ChatGPT where you can continuously, kind of endlessly, type things to GPT and it types back answers. And one of the most attractive things is it kind of can act like a search engine where you can type in something about, you want to know about some phenomenon in the world and it will give you a concise kind of paragraph answer in whole sentences. Um, and so it's kind of wowed people and it's become kind of viral. Um, amongst the, the things that it does well is it is it does respond to natural language inquiries like nothing we've ever seen before. So, for example, if you take the famous um, uh, uh, syllogism from Greek logic, uh, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. This is a three-stage, right, logic reasoning problem. If you just type in all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore, it will continue in its response to you, quote, if all men are mortal, comma, and Socrates is a man, comma, then it logically follows that Socrates is mortal, period. This is because the first statement, all men are mortal, establishes a general rule, and the second statement, Socrates is a man, provides an example that falls under this rule, period. Since the rule applies to all men, and Socrates is a man, the rule applies to Socrates, and therefore he must be mortal. It, the point is, it picks up where you left off, it knows what you're referencing, and it's able to take a fragment of what you said. It also is responsive to very subtle adjustments in this. When I typed, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, it responded not by simply continuing, it responded, yes, 
comment, that is a correct conclusion. And when it goes on to appraise the statement, if you type in all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is not mortal, it disagrees. It says, no, this is not a correct conclusion based on two given statements. So it has this amazing ability to um, pick up on very subtle nuances in what you're typing. And um, it, it, it can also remember state of things. So it can, it can keep track of what it is that you're, you're asking about things. So, for example, when I had been asking it about, um, <laughs> I put in, is April the cruelest month? Question mark. That was my question. And it gave me an answer. April is often associated with springtime and renewal. It must be a month with unpredictable weather. So I typed in, but that's a reference. That was my line, but that's a reference. GPT-3 responded, yes, comma, the line, quote, April is the cruelest month, unquote, is a famous quote from the poem The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. It goes on to talk about T.S. Eliot. So the point is, it knew that, but that's a reference, was my fragmented follow-up to the prior exchange, the prior couplet. That's a really interesting ability to maintain state, meaning keep the thread of conversation. The, the fragment that I spoke was not obviously connected unless there was a, a, a connection made to the prior utterance about April. And so this is a fairly nimble connecting of statements. Um, what is important to remember about this is that there has been a number of years of trying to create chatbots. And as part of that effort, tons of developers around the world have fashioned programs that will adopt a persona, which means that they can selectively look at how are groupings of text meant to correspond in the context of kinds of interaction. And that's a kind of convoluted way for me to say successful programs adopt a persona. And so what you're seeing with ChatGPT is it has adopted the persona of kind of, you could call it Jeeves the butler. If you ask it for things that are personal or something like that, it doesn't know what to say. I typed in, um, I was listening to Jimi Hendrix, and I typed in, it's interesting, colon, Hendrix was just masterful. I happen to like Jimi Hendrix. I typed in Hendrix was just masterful, and what I got back was, I'm sorry, but I'm not able to browse the internet and don't have any information about that. Can I help you with something else? So it behaves like an officious, help agent that can't stray outside of boundaries. This is a clever restriction of a persona to a script, essentially. So there isn't a script in the traditional sense that it's hardwired what to say, but there are bounds established. And that may be the most interesting thing that's behind all of this is the establishing of a functional role. And why that's interesting is this past week, as ChatGPT became viral, Millions of people around the world were conditioning themselves to accept interaction with a thing that was just basically a search engine in a sense, but had a little more personality. And they were conditioning themselves to accept its narrow, very narrow response pattern, which is, I guess, not what you'd expect from a friend, but maybe what you'd expect if you go to the DMV. So maybe ChatGPT is the latest version of the Department of Motor, Motor Vehicles in computer form. Uh, this week, I introduced subscriptions for the technology letter. I'm going to be putting up a paywall later this month. 
and subscriptions will be the way to access content going forward. For $30 a month, investors will get access to all of the content on the site. However, those of you who have been receiving the free daily email newsletter, that will be discounted to $20 a month. This is a way not only to fund the same great research and reporting you already enjoy on the site, I hope you enjoy, but also future features on the technology letter site, uh, things such as group Q&A, where we get together as a group and we talk about companies, technologies, and stocks we're interested. Uh, and also a, what I foresee is a broadening out of the TL20 mandate in stock picking. I think there'll be some interesting opportunities to bring more stock picking to readers as well. Uh, I hope you'll join me on this journey. It means a tremendous amount to me that people have stuck with the newsletter for two years and been willing to read extremely lengthy articles. I always say I have the most intelligent readers on the internet. I'm very grateful for your patronage and I hope that subscriptions will be something that brings you even more uh, rewards in interacting with the technology letter. That's about it for this Sunday, December 11th. Thank you once again for listening in. I hope you have a wonderful week and stay safe and I'll see you on the other side. Mm -hmm.